Welcome, everybody. I'm thrilled to have you back with us for another episode of the Fit Professional One podcast. I'm thrilled today. I have author, experienced consultant, Jeff Toole with us from Prime Resource Group. He is talent extraordinaire. Today, we're going to talk about one of his books. It's called Mastering the Complex Sale, and it's got some more subtitles. But the concepts in that book, I think, are just priceless. And I'm so excited he's agreed to join our podcast today because my objective is really to get you to consider Jeff's concepts, jump into his books, embrace Prime Resource, and really start to create excellent value for both you and your customers going forward. And with that, Jeff, welcome. I'm so glad to have you with me. Can we start off by you just telling us a little bit of your background and story, how you come to be the Prime Resource guy? <laughs> okay. Thanks, Paul. It's good to be with you. I always think when I get asked that question, should it be the 15 second or the 15 minute sort of going through? And it could be longer than that. You know, career-wise, my wife and I have been partners in four different businesses over 10 years or through our 20s. We've had the idea, started it, built it up, sold it. I have a very low boredom threshold. And I decided because I had experience working with a consultant, I thought, well, that's, that's kind of cool. You kind of go in the same area of expertise, but you're working with a different company, different product, and that would take care of my boredom thing. So that kind of worked out 40 years later, and it's still intriguing to be doing it. So I'm uh, telling you, I think you have a book right there, having a business with your spouse. Yeah. So anyway, the Prime Resource Group, we decided to do consulting and I thought sales was really my expertise. And it's very interesting. I mean, what I offered to my clients is I'll go out and I will shadow your top performing salespeople and I'll figure out what they're doing and I'll build a process around it. So that was the offer. We didn't have the diagnostic business development process per se. But then as I began to shadow and follow top people, I began to recognize I really didn't know that much about selling. So it was kind of a education and a building process, but that's how it all evolved. I'd say we ended up going towards the complex sale because I had a background a little bit in, in technology and an interest. So when I say complex sale, we're probably focusing on people involved in technology, capital equipment, high level professional services. And we define the complex sale as a decision the customer is making that they're not really that well equipped. They haven't done it before. They don't have a good process for making this decision and they need guidance from a professional. And we see the professional salesperson in a category with a physician, an attorney, uh, a CPA, and all of those folks, if you will, professional advisors are bringing guidance to their customer and really guiding their customer through a decision. And that's probably the distinction that how we look at the selling profession and the activity of selling. That's amazing. You sound a little bit like Napoleon Hill following Andrew Carnegie around. I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah. You developed it through that kind of observation interface. That makes sense to me after reading the books. They're, they're so grounded and foundational and effective. And what comes to my mind is thinking about the old school salespeople and what you said right there with the respect for the professional in the service, you know, right up there with whatever your favorite, most respected professional might be kind of throws me back on when you talked about the level or different eras of selling. Can you expand on that for the listener as kind sure. of a foundational topic for our discussion today? Well, one of our senior consultants was a professor at the University of Minnesota and did instructional design was his area of expertise. And he talked about whenever you're teaching a course, you need to give a history of the subject. So we looked at the literature that has evolved around selling. And when you think about probably the first books on selling were in the early 1900s. And 
they look at what the salespeople really did, what they were taught, the skills they had, and, and what they were asked to do. And when we piled all that stuff up, we found that it really dropped into three eras or three phases. So the era one, the early phase of selling, salespeople were pretty much taught or the books and articles were written about, you need to go out and tell a story you need to present, and then you need to close. You need to handle objections, or basically it was start an argument and win the argument, or sort of the approach. And then the era two, which probably began around the 60s, 70s, a couple books, late 60s, people began to say, well, you know, we really should be listening to the customer. We should be helping them. And the consulting seller began to form. And if you can picture those salespeople that grabbed that totally stood out from the ones that were still coming in and trying to pitch you a story and so forth. And so the era two was about asking questions, understanding the customer and solving a problem that they had. Now, what was interesting about that, the assumption that they had a problem kind of turned into a similar to a salesperson showing up and presenting. The end of era two was sort of the salespeople showing up and assuming you have a problem and presenting a solution to that. Now, era three really came about with the view that the customer needs to make this complex decision and doesn't have a good process for doing it. And, you know, we found the best salespeople were taking the customer through that process. So one way to look at the three eras is if you're looking at questions. In era one, there were no questions. I don't need to know anything about you. Let me just tell you about my cool product. In era two, we were asking questions, but the questions were questions the customer already knew they should be asking themselves. So the salesperson in era two, for the most part, was gathering the self-diagnosis of the customer and whatever the customer thought the problem was, they would then configure up their solution to match it. Now, obviously that was better than era one, but you can see if you start assuming your customer knows what their problem is, I'm sure there are many folks listening today that say, you know, my customers are clueless despite they talk like they think they know. So era three questions are questions the customer has not thought to ask themselves. And when you ask that question, it opens up the customer's mind. It provides them with an insight to their situation that they hadn't thought about before. And so really you're bringing clarity to their situation and you're giving a pathway to make a quality decision. So the goal of era three is to position your customer to make a high quality business decision. And that could be, they don't need what you're selling. I mean, oh. not every person who goes into a cardiologist ends up on the operating table the following week. Enough to have they can make a living <laughs> and pay for their lifestyle, et cetera, but not everyone. So as I said, and I'll probably say again, I'm a huge fan. I love your audio books. Jeff actually does the audio and he does such a good job, but that brings me to mind this through the books, you do these key thoughts and yeah. they're hugely thought provoking. So based on what you just said, what key thought comes to mind? Always well, believing well, one thing probably relative to diagnosis is prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. And so, you know, presenting a solution without really understanding the problem is unprofessional. And in the legal profession and the medical profession and probably the accounting profession, there are consequences. Yeah. As in laws being broken. I feel the same way about selling. There are many salespeople that couldn't get arrested. They could not pose enough evidence of professionalism in right. that sense. Right. And that, that key thought you quoted, that's a great way, it seems, to like encapsulate era two selling, right? 
It's kind yeah. of malpractice. It's yeah. because they're throwing solutions on that, kind of trying to jam solutions down throats. Like you said, they still have the element of level one selling where they're trying to win the argument probably that ensues. Yeah. yeah. And, and that became, I've worked a fair number of trade shows. I'm actually more of a process plant guy, but I've learned over time that those questions really matter. And how can we get into that? How do you ask questions? How do you come up with how to go about questioning so you, you can learn and become a good era three professional? You know, I think really the first part of that is really being curious and empathetic. You know, I care about the other party and their welfare. It's not about me, the salesperson making money. If I can help my customer accomplish what they want to accomplish, my success is a byproduct. So I guess it's taking the focus off yourself onto the other party. And that is curiosity. That's the heart of listening. And of course, now let's say with that in place, there is a mechanical part to questioning. And if you look at, you know, saying, for example, your solution has a unique capability, a feature, a benefit. It's been talked about, you know, forever. But if you take that feature, benefit, advantage, and you ask yourself the question, what would your customer be experiencing in the absence of the benefit of your feature? Well, that's excellent. And yeah. so, you know, if you think about pharmaceuticals, what's the symptom that I should look for as a doctor that says this particular drug will be the answer? So if there are no symptoms, there is no problem. So you'd be asking questions, let's say, about the process your product solution impacts, and you'd be looking for irregularities, symptoms, indicators in that process. Now, if the symptom exists, then there are probably business consequences to that. So knowing, you know, getting the affirmative answer on, yes, you know, I have shortness of breath, well, then you would be going to the consequences. You know, when do you experience that? How is that affecting your ability to climb stairs? You know, it's that type of thing. And the consequences in a business will have financial implications. Then there's a series of questions around sort of the so what? What happens to your outcome, your final product when this occurs during production? You know, when the finish is wavy. How does that affect your final product? Well, it doesn't have a good, you know, it's not able to. And how does that affect the customer when they're using it? So it's sort of that we call it a bridge to change that there's a series of topics that go in order that follow that sort of logical flow from symptom to resolution solution. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. It's outstanding. One thing that I want to ask a question about, as you said, really kind of taking the customer's perspective, I think. Can't remember how you phrased it exactly, but I'm curious, how do we in the process determine those items that are going to make the customer successful? Does the customer usually know or does the process help the customer discover that? And are well, they classic yeah. measures before we get to dollars? If you go back to inventing a product, inventing a solution. Someone in the business, a founder, perhaps, chemist, you know, IT guy, someone recognized a problem, and I'll call the problem a suboptimal performance. You know, this is being done manually. We could automate it. It takes a long time. We could reduce the production time. You know, some problem existed that someone decided they could fix it. Now, at that point, and these are not salespeople necessarily, you know, the guy that invented post-it notes over at 3M was singing in a church choir. And he was a chemist in the adhesive area, which is a you know core competency of 3M. And he just wanted to mark his hymnal with where the songs were. And so he just stuck pieces of paper, but they fell out. And then, you know what? I could put an adhesive because we had this, we developed, and it wasn't strong enough, but it doesn't leave a residue, but it would hold. And 
Okay, problem solved. Now, you don't know at the time that that's the problem the world is waiting to have solved, but... You know, they created a whole industry of sticky notes. But at that point, when someone identifies the problem, solves it, that's when the knowledge of those symptoms is clearest. You know, we made this because the papers kept falling out of the book. And I mean, if you were actually going to sell sticky notes person to person, you would then be looking for that symptom and probably looking around all the choirs in the world because they definitely have the issue. So those ingredients need to be developed during the product development process such that when we hand a new product over to a salesperson, it would be like a pharmaceutical company handing a new drug. You know, they have a very specific education process where they're teaching the salespeople the, well, basically the profile of the patient. You know, this is a drug for senior citizens. This is a drug for pediatrical patients etc. And the type of doctor using it would be a orthopedic, would be cardiovascular. That's who you should call on. And then you want to find out if they have patients that fit this profile. We had a client that came up with a new drug called an ACE inhibitor. Well, it's used in the cardio to regulate blood pressure and so forth. And they created it for a lower price than the market. But when they were approaching customers with the lower price, customers really didn't care because insurance was paying for it. So it was one of 10 and not a big deal. As I was interviewing them and talking with them, I said, well, what are the consequences if people are buying a more expensive drug, paying more money for the drug? And someone said, well, they're paying out more money. Well, big deal. And then all of a sudden, one of the ladies said, well, actually, if the patient is on Medicaid or Medicare, or not on Medicaid or Medicare, paying for their own prescription, if the drug is 25% more, they might skip every fourth day of their medication. And that's potentially harmful to their health. What really upsets the doctor is they prescribe a certain amount every day. And when the patient doesn't follow that, it jeopardizes their care of their patient. Okay, so now here's the symptom. The patient doesn't have insurance paying for their own medication, and they're stretching their drug. Now, how many patients of a typical you know, doctor would that be happening to? Not very many. Three, four, five percent. Okay. So now when the salesperson showed up and the doctor said, so what's new today? You know, waiting for the pitch. And we taught the salesperson to say, I'm not sure, but I'm curious. Do you have any patients you suspect are stretching their prescriptions and jeopardizing your care recommendations? Oh, yeah. Can you think of any personally? Yes, I have two patients I just saw yesterday. Well, for those two patients, we have an ACE inhibitor that's been approved, and the major difference is it's about 25% less, and it would probably help those two. So now think about what we did. We just bought a general situation and personalized to the customer, the doctor, and we introduced that, taught that at a sales meeting, and their sales doubled within six weeks. And that 1% or 2% or 3% of the public, of those patients, not the public, that was that was like 200000 a month wow. in revenue. But, wow. but anyway, so, you know, I think what got us on and where did the questions come from? It's understanding what are those symptoms? What are those consequences? You know, what's the market profile of the patient, customer, so forth? And the best source for those are really not the salesperson. They should be developed earlier in the solution product development cycle. So when we do a program, we're advising clients that the folks in marketing, the folks in product development, customer support, engineering, technical support, 
all those folks need to be part of the same process because it's not a sales process. Sales are the outcome. It's a decision process. And all those folks have expertise, experience that can contribute to developing that process. Yeah. And what a excellent mindset and process to just get more professionals comfortable with being in business development so they don't succumb to the stereotypes that are almost gone, but they still exist. I think when I'm out recruiting for business development engineers, it's hard to say the word sales because it's not really sales. And if you do, sales has a negative connotation. And based on what you just went through, it should not. It's problem solving, extraordinaire. As you're talking, that some stuff in the book I remember in something that we run into sometimes is this whole idea of relevancy and credibility. Now, in your examples, I noticed, you know, a three, that whole thing has brand. It's got corporate credibility behind a new product. You have a high expectation that's going to work. In the medical field, of course, or even pharmaceutical sales, there's a high amount of technical acumen, if you will, but it doesn't end there. So how do we get in the mind of the customer that, you know, tackling those, being relevant and being credible? What do we do? How do we do that? Well, I would say credible has its source in the salesperson's knowledge of the customer's business, the customer's situation, performance requirements, and so forth. And, you know, one of our key thoughts is you'll gain more credibility through the questions you ask than the stories you present. And so exceptional credibility is what you know about your customer. Expected credibility is what you know about your product, your solution. Everyone has that. Now, the relevance has to do with the financial impact. I mean, it ends up there. I mean, you can talk about relevant to the customer type of business and profile and everything like that. But bottom line, relevance and materiality is the, the measurement of the impact. So would it be accurate to say that it is worthwhile having the organization, my organization, at least create hypotheses on how much margin our solution, our product makes the customer? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really the major premise of our approach is you research the customer from the outside looking in and you develop what we refer to as a value hypothesis, which essentially is based on the customer's demographics, profile, size, and the symptoms that you're seeing. It appears as if the customer's performance could be at risk to this degree. And as you extrapolate that to the customer's size, it could be $1.2 to $1.4 million. Now, the question then is, would you like to take a deeper look at this? to see to what degree the hypothesis is true or not. So, you know, I, I give you an example, a client that provides digital measurement systems into the petroleum industry, namely the fueling gas stations, the pumps and tanks and so forth. Okay? Well, you can see from the outside looking in, that a fueling station is equipped with analog devices versus digital. That's a yes-no situation. Okay. So now knowing that you have analog systems, this could be when we see the analog systems, they are costing, placing the business at risk for 2 to 4% revenues and 1 to 2% operational costs. And if I look at your 35 locations, you know, this would be like a quick stop fuel market type thing. Okay. So my prospect company has 35 locations. Well, you can look at that from the outside looking in and you can look up their total sales divided by 35 and you have, you know, one and a half million per location. And if I extrapolate that, it looks like this could be as much as two hundred to $220,000 per month, potentially at risk in the absence of digital systems. And my question to you is, would you like to take a look at that more deeply to determine what an exact number is for your business? That's how I would approach 
Nice. A nice. new customer. And I probably would approach the CFO of mm -hmm. that company, not the IT digital analog mechanical maintenance person. They'll be part of the decision. Yes. But right now I'm basically asking the financial CFO, you know, is 200,000 a month worth looking at? So credibility, when you picture getting that call and you know, you're an executive with a company, Paul, as I am, I mean, how many garbage calls do you get? And when I say garbage, I'm being generous. But when I think of a salesperson calling up prime resource group and offering, for example, less than truckload freight consulting, well, we're a consulting business. We don't ship anything larger than a box of books. Yeah. And I mean, how hard would that be for a salesperson to figure out we are not, a truck has never pulled up to our loading dock. Who did they turn down when they hired this person that is thinking they're working by making that call? Yeah. But anyway. It's um, kind of like lazy professionalism. It's, I'm just going to knock off a list, see what sticks. Yeah. And, you know, that's something. As you're speaking this time, I, I was thinking about, you bring up this concept of unpaid consulting. I mean, when, yeah. when is too much too much? And kind of when are you, as your organization, engaged in this approach? Maybe giving away more than you should? Does that ever happen? Of course. And you've got to look at the history of giving advice. And it was a good idea for some people, some businesses at some time, <laughs> but not all the time. So when you think about early on, companies develop a technology and they can go into a prospect and they can diagnose, they can consult, and they can find a valuable match. And they get the sale at a high margin, making them very profitable. So they didn't charge for the consulting. However, they probably had a 80% closing conversion rate and a high margin. Then as they progress, as a business, months, years pass, competitors come in. And what happens is their closing rate and their margins start to decrease. And, it, and it's like the old story of a frog. If you dump a frog into boiling water, they'll immediately jump out. But if you have them in a pot and you slowly turn up the heat, they'll never notice that and they'll perish. So this change of results, no, it didn't stand out to anyone. And all of a sudden the company is very unprofitable and about to go out of business. Seems bizarre, but that story is repeated again and again. So so no unpaid consulting means your margin is not there to cover the cost of it and your conversion rate is not there to capture margin. So and, when, and they can also walk down the road, right? They, yeah. Well, you know, people always ask the story, well, if I do all this consulting, what's to stop the customer from going down the street and getting it from someone else? Well, you know, that's a complex question in how easy is it and how much is the difference? And my experience has been that if your difference in price is under 10% in what you could say was a comparable market, but the customer has become convinced that you understand their problem better than anyone else, they will pay that premium. But when you start getting, you know, like if you take your product as filtration sand, that's probably a great example. But if your customer really understood, believed you understood the problem better, that says you're going to solve it better, quicker time to performance for, et cetera, that would be worth some extra money. Now, you know, my experience has been in a pure commodity, like a chunk of wood, you know, to another chunk of wood or steel, steel, you know, that type of thing. I'm buying sheet metal. I probably will pay an extra five or 6% to that. And that that's extreme. Okay. I, I was going to bring up this, you use the word commodity and you have a key thought in there. You say, if you commoditize your customers, they'll commoditize you. Can you expand on that? Be like, number one, how do you commoditize your customers? I think it's kind of might be relevant to what we just talked yeah. about. Yeah. Well, commoditizing your customer 
would be no real research personalized to that customer. And you're ringing them up or you're sending them a mass email that is kind of like, dear ma'am or sir, and you're treating me, the customer, the same. I'm the next call on your list. Now, if you, if you go back to the example I mentioned earlier, where the reason I'm calling you is I noticed your control system is operating on an analog. And also later I mentioned, you know, they have 35 stations. Well, that's saying I did my homework. And that call is going through. That letter is going to be responded to. But in the absence of that, I'm just saying I have uh, digital measurement systems. I'd like to come in and talk to you about how ours are the best in the industry and so forth. Well, I'm treating you like every other salesperson. I'm not yeah. setting you apart at all. Yep. And I don't know if this is a logical sequence, but one, have your list of your key concepts or interesting thoughts in front of me here. There's one that says there are no free moves. Yeah. Essentially, when and to an action, there is always a reaction. So no, no free moves essentially would be an example of you're saying, you know, my product is better than my competitors. And my customer is, you know, going to buy the competitors. The question is, what are the consequences to that? Are there consequences to that? And if you say, well, yeah, it's going to take them three times as long to install. Well, chances are your competitor didn't mention that. <laughs> That's something the customer is going to find out later when it's too late. All right. So that's not a free move thinking they're getting the discount. And so now that begs back to how do we develop our questions? Well, a question should be asked and we call it the assumptive question. I'm hearing an assumptive question here that you'd ask your customer saying, when you checked with some of the reference sites, were you comfortable with the amount of time it took to install the new system? And the customer might say, well, I haven't spoken to anyone about that. Why are you asking? Well, I'm wanting to make sure that when they say they will have the installation completed in three weeks, that's reality. And the only way to de determine its reality would be to speak with one or two of their customers that have accomplished that. Now, that's very different than the Arrow One salesperson who starts badmouthing hmm. the competitor. Now, it could be truth, but if you're saying something negative, it puts you in another position and category. So that assumptive question introduces the topic and encourages the customer to check something out that they weren't, that wasn't a part of their decision process or decision process to overlook that. But now you've introduced that into their decision process. They'll likely make the call, find out that, you know, it's a difficult install, et cetera. So the other one that comes to mind is as you're doing the process you just went through and you're experiencing that in the book, you talk about fat and loaded words. Yeah. First of all, what are those? And then what do you do when you pick one off? Maybe through an example. Almost all words are fat or loaded words. You know, so for example, the customer says, we really require a quality performance from anything we buy. Okay. Now, what does quality mean? How is it determined? How is it measured? Performance. What does that mean? How is it determined? How is it measured? And so a fat or loaded word is a word that could have multiple definitions, multiple meanings. And if you listen to any conversation, they're part of every sentence. So it's back to listening, being curious. And excuse me, you mentioned requiring quality level of performance. And I'm wondering when you say quality, could you help me a bit on that? Could you expand? What are some of the characteristics that you would include? How would you measure? Well, and that, those are four separate questions to be asking about quality. But there's a 15 to 30 minute conversation that could be behind that. And then you're developing a clear understanding of what the customer is trying to say or what the other person is trying to say this is everyday people to people conversations yeah. are loaded with fat words.
Boy, that's a huge takeaway for me already is don't assume you know what quality means. Yeah. And I think so many people, that's an excellent example. Of course, there's many, many other words that you just, you're listening, you're, you're assigning your meaning to the word quality, and especially your meaning of quality within whatever your product or service is. Exactly. That's excellent. Right away, you miss the boat if you don't. Yes. Well, that's listening. That's a natural way to listen, but it's a inaccurate yeah. way to listen. Yeah. So maybe that's a good one to jump into. What did you mean by the key thought? No surprises. Well, yeah, no surprises, essentially. And by the way, I frequently go back to a doctor-patient concept. Yeah, it's excellent. And so a question I would ask is, if you were a doctor performing surgery on a patient, what are some of the things that could surprise your patient in the recovery room? And yeah, I'm thinking about my father-in-law had open heart surgery at one point, and I happened to be visiting with him when the surgeon came in before the, the evening before the surgery. And he said, one of the things I want to mention to you is this is going to be really an intense surgery because it will be this procedure and this procedure, and we're doing it in one operation. And when you wake up, you're not going to be sure you're actually alive. Your, your chest is going to feel like a truck drove over it and backed up over it again, and you're going to have a, a breathing tube down your throat. So you won't be able to talk. You'll try, but you won't be able to. Anyway, he went through this scenario and I thought, wow, you know, he's not going to be surprised when he wakes up. And so it's, you really don't want the customer encountering unknowns, things they didn't anticipate and get to the, why didn't you tell me? point is a worst case scenario. So no surprises. It's just about really having the customer really informed about what's going to be required, what it's going to take and so forth. And in my mind, I'm thinking that your cumulative experience and team experience, having good communication of customers. I want to make the point you're making the point every customer is different, but there's certain situations given your product or service offering where you might be able to anticipate well, and yeah. then share so they're not surprised. Yes. Uh, yeah. That's another one where you're talking about be prepared to not be prepared. You know, the idea of cognitive dissonance and especially highly technical people can be a little bit more introverted and not think they're going into a sales situation where they're really going into a problem solving situation. And to me, that's a really good one. If you could expand on that for us to help individuals when there something happens, there's no freak out. There is. Yeah. Yeah. A, dub a doubling down of the problem solving or whatever. Can you maybe throw an example? Well, the, help the listener understand be, that one. Be prepared to not be prepared is about being so prepared that you can remain cool, calm, collected in a total panic situation <laughs> because everything's been anticipated, practiced, rehearsed, and there aren't any surprises. Back wow. to that. Yeah. And so thinking about the questions you're going to be asking, it's understanding what those questions are. It's writing them out. It's reading them and rehearsing them, uh -huh. hearing yourself ask the question such that when you're asking the question, it seems very relaxed and casual and spontaneous. And in that description, just how important is deliberate practice? Well, it's extremely critical. And I suppose I'm dating myself, but you'll recognize the name Rodney Dangerfield as a comedian, stand-up comedian. I was doing a program for a client and Rodney was speaking that evening. I was doing a program the next day, but we were sitting next to each other at dinner. Nice. And, and one of the things I always ask professionals is how much do you practice rehearse and prepare? And they always appreciate that question because they do so much of it, the good ones. And it's like, if you ask that question, that indicates you kind of understand the work they go through. And he said, I prepare a lot. And I said, well, how about when you're doing a appearance on the Tonight Show? 
you know, isn't that like five or 10 minutes? He's, oh no, it's three minutes stand up, three minutes on the couch. <laughs> and then he said, he said, I start material for tonight show period appearance three months before. Wow. And I try it out in the club. It won't be the whole act because it's a new line. It'll be one minute out of 45 minutes. And, and then he broke it down as to, he, he goes from a 30 second joke or comment and expands it all out to it's three minutes. And he's doing it in his nightclub act that's longer, right? And then he said, the day of the show, I spent three hours repeatedly going through those six minutes and do the math. That's 30 times. Go through it that final day. And I mean, I've got similar stories from other professionals that all indicates that it kind of goes with Michael Malcolm Gladwell's book where he talked about 10,000 hours. Yes. Leads to being a professional in a career mm -hmm. and going back to, I'm thinking 25 to 30 times rehearsing that question to get really comfortable, relaxed, prepared to not be prepared. I find that invaluable. Do you have any advice for the listener or a person watching on YouTube about how to get staff jacked up about practicing? You know, I think it's just repeated counsel. And, you know, just this past week, my grandson, who's 12, is playing basketball. I never played basketball. I'm not much of an athlete at all. So I don't know anything technical about it. But he began playing. He had his first practice back before Christmas, actually, right after Thanksgiving. And he then sprained his toe doing something. Oh, yeah, that would have been bike riding. He did mountain biking in the fall. So he sprained his toe. And he was uncomfortable with his first game because the team had been playing, had probably four games and four practices, and he couldn't do any of that. And so I just talked to him about, well, if you want to do the basketball, you're starting now and it's going to be practicing and you're not bad at basketball for the amount of time you've been able to practice. And that's the only difference between where you are today and where you'll be at some point in the future. And, you know, and I told him about the story about Michael Jordan shooting, you know, I think it was like two or 3,000 baskets a day. And Tiger Woods shooting two or 3,000 uh, strokes drives on the practice range every tournament and had done it growing up and so forth. So in, in my mind, we weren't going to solve that problem with one conversation, but those examples and whatever he sets out to do, that's what it'll take to get really good at it. And it's okay not being good and deciding you don't want to do it, but there's a definite path and it's not an accident. Yeah. And I said, there's that decision in there too. Yeah. And yeah. so, so you go back to, you're talking about their basic desire to be successful, to be professional, and then they're receptive to your coaching. So it's, I mean, during the hiring process, we would advise interviewing and asking them questions about goal orientation and things they've done in their previous endeavors to accomplish goals. Because that's the one element that probably is the most predictive of success yes. is their goal orientation. Yeah, excellent. Really appreciate that. I could talk about deliberate practice all day. I'm a huge fan of it. I think it's part of the human condition. And, you know, that's where we take knowledge. We have skills and discipline. You know, that's where that all links is through that practice. Pivoting a little bit, I want to cover this idea in your philosophy on what the customer's budget really means and what it essentially it's not a constraint. Could you elaborate on just your kind of approach and philosophy to customer budgets? Well, you know, the, the key thought is budgets are irrelevant. 
And what we're saying is no budget has ever been followed from beginning of year to end of year. Their estimates, their planning, their approximations, and essentially money flows to the best financial opportunities. So having said that, a budget is going to evolve or shape. A business person is going to spend money to make money, and they're going to put the money towards what brings them the best return. So back to our role is guiding the customer through a quality decision process. A key element in that process is the financial attributes of, you know, what is it costing us to not have this solution, to not do this process or procedure? And is that acceptable or not? Then what will it cost us to implement this change the new product process procedure, and is that a good use of the money? Well, mm -hmm. only your customer can make that decision because it's their business or their job responsibility. Our responsibility is to make sure they have the information to, you know, there were six or seven decisions leading up to, okay, I'll do it. But budget as designed, as originally set, will always be inaccurate. <laughs> In my experience, too, in listening to various sales resources over the years, it also seems like a bit of a brush off by the customer. Yeah. And, and yeah. my impression of the whole approach that you're using is it's a great way to get around that obstacle and actually, you know, back to everything we've said, demonstrate the value to the customer. And yeah, um, the budget, budget question never comes up. Because if I start out presenting to you to buy this thing, it's a very easy and frequently used tactic for the customer to say, we really don't have a budget for that. Yeah. Yeah. Done. And our first question is, are you noticing any symptoms? Yes. And if you are, then we go to consequences and financial impact. And ID the cost, or like you said, leave. If you can't find a cost, I think yeah. that's a great one too, if they are doing that. One more pivot. I'm really interested in the world's obsession with artificial intelligence. <laughs> Yeah, and I think the thought I have, let's put it out there as a hypothesis that I have, is that your approach is actually going to significantly help people that in the world as AI machine learning comes in because it's so important to understand the questions to ask of the data. And so this whole approach that you have, I think you get a times two bang for the buck here because it really comes into play. But I'm curious, do you have thoughts or has anything in your approach been challenged or changed or enhanced because of what's going on with AI and machine learning? No. I would say where AI is being used and the advertisements I've received and seen, it's like we're going to try to improve the cold call letter. I'm not seeing any work in improving the personalization of that letter, what we've talked about earlier, and it's mass producing it and sending out tons. So that whole area of improving incompetent salespeople's performance, here's what's going to happen. If they do a good letter and I'm intrigued and respond, I'm going to have an idiot, unprofessional salesperson call me back in response to that. And we're back to square one. So they're missing the whole process of fixing that. And you'll notice, again, I keep going back to the medical profession. They've been through this. When the medical profession came up with robotics and that particular company was a client of ours, the prospects that we went after were the best of the best surgeons. They were the ones that could understand and appreciate the robotic technology, the precision, and the symptoms they had in a natural surgery that would be solved, eliminated in robotics. They did not call on the 50% of doctors that graduated at the bottom of the class. I mean, that's pretty telling mm -hmm. to me that the prospects for AI will be the best. Now, having said that, I'm not going to 
go totally to artificial intelligence. But if you think about software, you know, we've developed with clients software to guide the diagnostic process and to do very precise simulations of the calculations of performance and performance improvement. Those types of tools are great and they increase the capabilities of knowledgeable professionals. And I mean, software has been doing that. And just by coincidence, I guess I read an article a few days ago about a AI application that took in all of the recorded performances of George Carlin, very famous comedian back in the 60s, 70s through Huge the 90s. Yeah. And so his daughter, they produced a, I don't know if it was 20 minute or 30 minute set of his comedy in how he would have likely written and performed it based on everything he's done before. So that's kind of the concept. And I guess his daughter, who's kind of the shepherd of his material, listened to it and said, that's not my dad. Ah. <laughs> Yeah, because it was he was so unpredictable, and all it does is it it looks at patterns, right? Yeah, and I mean, it's he would just pivot nine hundred eighty degrees. It was creative at the time, and anyway, you know, I suppose back to the your original question on the AI, I've been pretty negative on it replacing quality work, and at the same time being optimistic. Because, for example, the echocardiogram. Now, it's not AI totally. It's the device, the mechanics, mm -hmm. and it assists the profession. Suppose I'm skeptical about the replacing the professional and doing it. But, you know, a prior to the echocardiogram, it was about 5% of cardiologists that could accurately diagnose a murmur. And with the echocardiogram, it's now in the 80%. So it's a tremendous boost to the profession. But I suppose it comes back to what are they trying to do? And if they're trying to replace a salesperson reaching out to a prospective customer, they're not able to. I didn't know where you'd go with that, but I'm there myself. I actually think because of machine learning and AI, I think the idea of business development sales becomes more important. And because it's that human element in bridging whatever gap exists from what you know and what you need to know, and how do you go about doing that? And it's not all just uh, patterns and various statistics that we can pull out of data. It's really interesting uh, for the engineers out there, anybody with a, some kind of technical background that learned some programming. A million years ago when I was in engineering school, the language was Fortran, but it doesn't matter what the language is, the logic is still there because it's it's human logic. And in the kind of audit courses and executive programs I've taken on AI in the fourth generation industrial revolution type stuff, which talks about it, it's really boils down to my take. And I'm, I don't mean to be, I'm not an expert, but my current impression and I guess hypothesis is AI machine learning really just takes data and applies old fashioned computer do loops. Remember the loop, the if then while and analyzes data in terms, that's the algorithm. So it's the program that you smash the data through. And this is very simplistic to be sure, but that alone to me, if you accept that very thumbnail description, really does screen that that's not going to replace business development and sales. It's having data and then being able to ask accurate questions. Well, what's interesting is I don't think customers are going to volunteer a lot of data to me, run my algorithms against. I could be wrong, but I'd be highly surprised. So we're still going to have this gap between where my organization ends and theirs begins. And I can look at my experience and maybe make better hypotheses going in. But yeah, I'm with you there. It's going to be really interesting to see just how it comes in. And I, I too would support your comment that I don't see AI replacing business development or what we call salespeople in era three. I actually think it makes it more important. I think it's the new job because let me add something too and get your comment on this. 
I think what your whole concept is, professionals at large companies should learn this because they're selling inside their company. And it's very much the same kind of approach. And I would highly encourage listeners that that are in larger companies are maybe not holding the purse strings or the manager that controls the resources or the CFO or the CEO. This is the way you can really also attack internal problems to get your new business initiatives approved and funded. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, you're talking about a quality decision process can be used to do what you need to do, make good decisions. And, you know, I think about enhancing the professional, not replacing mm -hmm. the professional is the way to look at this. And if someone starts telling me their AI system is going to replace, I'm not interested because that won't happen. Uh, that's excellent. Okay. Well, time flies. And yeah. uh, so before we wrap up and I'll give you a head start here to be thinking is like, what are your takeaways you'd like to listeners to take with them? And before you go, I'll go to give you more time. But before we even get there, is there anything that you want to talk about or add that we haven't covered? No, I think, we, you know, we covered a number of very key points. And if that made any sense to your listeners, they can check it out further, of course. Sure. Could you briefly tell us about your other books? Well, we wrote three books and Mastering the Complex Sale has two editions. But if you think about Mastering the Complex Sale, about the business-to-business -business interaction, we wrote Exceptional Selling, which is about the person-to-person -person interaction within the context of the complex sale. And then the prime solution is about the preparation we were talking about earlier, getting the whole organization involved like a medical team from mm -hmm. the admission person all the way through the surgeon and the post-op recovery therapist and so forth. Supplying uh, those principles. That's perfect. And I, I tell you, listeners, pick these three up, jump in. You will not be sorry. They're a bit challenging reads, but not really. I mean, if you're motivated to really enhance your selling process, you're going to be excited when you're done with each of these books. And it's also takes a lot of hard work and a lot of good sponsorship by decision makers, whether that's your C-suite, depending on how you're structured, to really make change in your organization. But I cannot personally endorse these books enough in your ideas, Jeff. I think they're revolutionary my takeaways from today's decision is I really liked your concept of considering approaching, you used in your example, approach the CFO, approach, include at least the financial decision maker instead of the actual user, because it's usually multiple person uh, decision. And, and that's one I think is, is really interesting. The other one is the idea when we're talking about fat and loaded words, how almost all the words are fat and loaded, which means as we hear things like quality, which we discussed at length, we really need to make sure that we understand the customer's meaning. And it actually facilitates questioning the whole diagnostic process very nicely to just use that topic. If you're having problems, go in and listen for words you know you need to reach a mutual understanding as to what they mean for each of you. And, and the customer's meaning matters. And that's the one you want to you want to make sure. So those were a couple of takeaways I had. Jeff, as we close here, what would you like the listeners to take with them? Well, I guess since I was handing them out, you know, probably not thinking as much from a takeaway, but I, I would, I think thinking about sales as a profession at the same level as the professions we normally think about being esteemed and so forth and going into the role as a professional salesperson seeing yourself really as a high valued asset to your customer and then focusing on the benefit to the customer rather than yourself 
Excellent. Excellent. You have that one in there where some people's ideas are salespeople are guilty until proven innocent. That's just not, that's era one. Yeah. That's not where we are now. And I, I completely agree. As I said earlier, I think the business development and sales function as we've defined it today is actually going to be central in the success of organizations going forward. And with that, listeners, I would absolutely recommend just three books. Also, please check out Jeff's website which we'll also have on there at Prime Resource. Just excellent, excellent opportunity to engage with his professionals and group to enhance the success of not only your organization, but your customers, which is kind of what this is all about. So with that, Jeff, I remain a huge fan of yours. I want to thank you for being with me today. And boy, maybe some other time we can have another discussion and let me know if there's any way I can help you and your organization. I truly appreciate you being here today. Glad to do it. Thanks, Paul. All right. With that, have a good week. It's time to get to work.